This is chapter 8 of You Are Not Alone. It's hard to say when the world ended. Part 1. I'm the reason you sick ones pray to God as they lie there still. I'm the reason they cry out because I kill. Hello and welcome to You Are Not Alone, a 1v1 horror actual play podcast. I'm Blaine, your host and RPG-loving friend. Each episode, I sit down with a friend and play a one-on-one horror session tailored to their fears. Before we get started, a reminder that if you like the podcast, there are a whole host of ways to support it. First is rating and reviewing. If you listen on iTunes or any other podcatcher that allows reviews... Please consider sharing what you like about the show. It is an incredible way to get other folks listening to us. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Blaine C. Martin. That's B-L-A-I-N-E-C-M-A-R-T-I-N, all one word. I also have a Ko-Fi under the same name. Any support you give financially really helps cover the costs of hosting and upgrading equipment. Also, a final reminder, my game, Born of Briar and Blood, is available in Codex Hunger from the Gauntlet Network. It's available through June 1st by backing the Gauntlet Patreon at $5 or more. That's patreon.com slash gauntlet. After June 1st, I'm not sure exactly when, it will go up on RPG. If you pick up the game, I really hope you enjoy it. If you want to reach out, I would really love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Esmeraldapod. That's E-S-M-E-R... E-L-D-A-P-O-D, all one word. Or email me at blaine at youarenotalonepod.com. So this week, there's a little bit of a change. I will be sitting down to play Dread. That's right, play. Joshua Hearn, who played Murderous Ghosts in Chapter 4, Fear is the Mind Killer, is running a game that makes me truly anxious and afraid. Dread is a horror RPG designed by Epidiah Ravichal, Like many people, Dread is one of the first indie RPGs I ever played, one of the first dedicated horror games I ever played. It has been incredibly formative for me for how I run games, play games, and design games. Dread is such a complex game for a game that can be taught in just a few sentences, and I really love it. If you've never played, in Dread, you have a tumbling tower set up as a monument to horror or dread, if you will. And whenever the outcome of an action is undecided, you pull a block from the tower. If the tower falls, your character is removed from the game, usually by death. Beyond just being a great game, Epidiah has a number of essays about pacing and tension building in a variety of horror genres. So even if you don't ever actually play dread, I don't recommend that, though I recommend you play it over and over. The book will help you run better horror games. So pick it up over at dreadgame.wordpress.com. Before we start playing, Josh and I talk a little bit about running horror, then we use an amazing character creation method Josh came up with. A warning, this episode features a very brief mention of violence against animals, and a lot of talk about feelings of inadequacy. If these are troubling for you, I wanted you to know. So let's get started. 
So we are playing the game today that terrifies me the most, Dread, with a voice that will most likely sound familiar if you've been listening, one Joshua Hearn. Hey, Josh, how's it going? Going well. How are you, Blake? Doing well. I'm a little nervous looking over at the Jenga Tower. The collection of Jenga Towers. The collection of Jenga Towers now. Um, At the time this airs, it will be like months later, but I shared on the Twitter pictures of names written on our blocks, Mm. and people are really liking the idea, including Epidiah Ravichal, creator of Dread. He retweeted the idea of writing dead player names or dead character names. I think that's great. I've really, hopefully not dead player names. That would be a very different experience. A a different type of dread. Uh, Yes. More existential than anything. Um, Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I, I, um... I hope by the time this this is released to have more names on my tower. It's the dream. It is. It, it we might. It is my dream. It is my hope. I hope one day to have a tower full of sharpied names of those whom I have tortured. Yeah, I and mean, there's what there's. Is it thirty blocks in the tower? It, that is an excellent question to which I do not know. Uh, somewhere around there, but if you figure, let's say an average of three names per block, because some are going to take oh, two sides, some are going to take one. That's a good ninety. Yeah, I can kill that many people in a game of dread. To be clear, in a game of dread, <laughs> the number of people I can actually kill substantially lower. I probably. I would hope approaching zero. That's. I mean, that also. That's the. As long as we're. I didn't expect to get this confessional this quick, Blaine. <laughs> I just I bring it out in people. You just play well tonight is what I'm saying. Oh my! <laughs> Hopefully this gets out to, to listeners' ears and doesn't just sit on my uh, laptop hard drive for someone to find when they're uh, sweeping out my cat. <sighs> that would be the worst horror movie ever. Is is a is a podcast based horror movie. About oh gosh no please yeah let's not get I feel bad for even saying it out loud for fear that someone will make that yeah please don't do that listeners please do not so uh, we're gonna be a little bit different here you have a deck of cards two decks of cards actually right in front of you because you have the Taroka deck as well as a poker deck (laughs) I do I do well my my hope is and, and it is a remarkably flexible system when it comes to collaboratively telling a story. However, I think that one of the places where it is most flexible and we need to be most flexible with it is in character creation. I I used to do the fully written character sheet like the book talks about, and I think it's great. I thought that was one of the better innovations of of the system. Yeah. But I love to do it by interview. And so something I've been trying recently is even to introduce some more randomness into that character creation process to take more of the control out of the hands of the player. Uh, Because fundamentally good horror games, especially games like Dread, that really are are trying to create this sense of loss of control and, and, well, Dread, uh, I think that if we can, even in the character creation process, take away some of the player's control over their character, we prime a horrific experience. Yeah, yeah, and we've spent a lot of time this weekend uh, talking about dread and horror and, like, your concept of false agency, which I completely agree with. The idea of no choice you make is really going to be a good choice. Absolutely. Uh, it's just how bad is it going to be. Well, sure, I think. Or what kind of bad it's going to be. The example I remember that I think we talked about is 
is in one of my earlier Dread games with a mutual friend, with, with Ben. Yeah. There was a moment in which they were in an abandoned convenience store during a zombie apocalypse. And there was a thumping coming from the, you know, the, the single-use bathroom in the back of the store. Now, I knew there were a couple of possibilities. Of course, the players hopefully didn't. And, and so as they approached it, they weren't sure if it was a zombie in that room. Now, of course, the way the story played out is they, or they shot through the door at the, zo- at the presumed zombie in there. And so when they opened the door, it wasn't a zombie. It was, it was an innocent victim that they had just killed. Now, Ben had said for a while that, that, that you know, he really liked that part really was very dreadful. And so we talked about it and I said, well, you know, the, the way that works is that if you had presumed it was an innocent victim, it would have been a zombie. And because you presumed it was a zombie, it was an innocent victim. It was Schrodinger's bathroom. It yeah. was never a choice. It was always going to be the worst option based on how you act. That's... Which is in in really in, in a fundamental way, that's a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. It's all it, at least a good horror movie. It's always going to be the worst possible thing. The 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 worst possible thing happening at the worst possible time. The illusion of control. Horror doesn't happen without hope. There is no horror without hope. Good horror storytelling is about promising hope and just never giving it to them. Yeah, never letting them have it. Yeah, I always, I mean, I, I, one of my favorites is Romero. Mm-hmm. He will always be one of my favorites because he does that so well. There's always the one person you think is going to survive and they make it to the last 30 seconds of the film and then they don't. Or Yes, and, and or the same kind of convention where someone does make it all the way through the movie. They, su- they survive. In fact, in most of the Dread games I run, I'd say... At least one character survives to the end. It's more fun to have one character survive to the end. But, of course, it's a pretty awful existence that they survive to. It's not exactly a happy ending. It's, yeah. It's a different ending. It is. Uh, you're, you're alive. Good. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I did, like, the franchise got out, out of control eventually. But one of the things I really love about the Scream franchise mm-hmm. is... In Scream 2, you get to see that. Like, someone survived Scream 1, and in Scream 2, you get to see just how out of control and fucked their life is it's, because it's they survived. It's rough. I, yeah, I, I agree. I really enjoyed early Scream. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, especially because they were really playing with some of the, you know, the typical conventions of uh, horror storytelling, slasher storytelling, really playing with where those two intersect, but also where they diverge. And yeah, I could talk at length about Scream. I won't. This is not. Yeah. This is not the Screamcast. Maybe maybe later. When you start when, that podcast. Yeah. Let's overthink Scream. Call me. Uh, I could I could do it for so long. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. All right. So uh, so you have this deck of cards, which is going to take control out of my hands and. Uh, not fully, but somewhat. It helped to generate a backstory. So as we move, for the listener, as we move through some of the backstory work that we'll be doing and developing Blaine's character, every so often when he's making decisions, I'm going to flip a, a card over. And I've got them separated into piles. And, and we're looking for the ace of whatever suit it is that we're, we're flipping over. And when we find that ace, 
the scene is going to end, almost sort of a la Ten Candles, where the scene is going to end, and it's going to cost something. It's going to be a a character-defining moment. And so Blaine and I are going to have to be creative and find a way to end the scene, and we're going to hope that we don't draw the ace on the very first card of the deck, but that is kind of how horror works. It is sometimes senseless. Yeah, it's a possibility, and then uh, we're going to have to think real quick. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I might uh, I might reserve that. Like I do sometimes with uh, large dread games. Uh, if someone knocks the tower over in a moment when it would be like, well, how do they die from opening a letter? Uh, I might reserve the death or reserve the moment for uh, slightly later in the narrative when it makes a little more sense. I think that's, that's fair. So are you ready? I'm ready. As, as ready as I will ever be. Good, I'm glad. So Blaine? Yes. It's hard to say when the world ended, but it definitely did. Part of the reason it's so hard to say is because keeping track of days and weeks and months and birthdays and anniversaries and your third cousin's bar mitzvah, it didn't seem to have the same importance after the end. No one was rushing out to get their word-a-day calendar to keep up with their vocabulary in the aftermath of... The end. I'd like to say we didn't see it coming, but we both know that's a lie. It was uh, an EMP blast. Electromagnetic pulse. The world ended in a heartbeat. And being the good Christian nation that we are, we said, what would Jesus do? And we nuked him. We sent back our volley. The world came to an end a little too quickly. Just enough time to mourn it. Just enough time to really weep at our human failures. It's hard to say when the world ended. And what's even stranger is, what do you do when you survive the end of the world? When the world has ended fundamentally and undeniably, the world is over, and yet you're still around? Still around, just sort of clinging to the corpse of the world? For whatever reason, you're a survivor, I I guess. What do you call this? You can't call it a new world. It's ashes and cinders and sadness. But it's not the old world. That world ended. That world's gone. Maybe this is the interim world. This world is the compost. The rot. The decay. That will make fertilizer for the new world that none of us will see. Because we survived the end of the world. Good for us. What's your name? Dr. Sally McNamara. Dr. McNamara. What'd you want to be when you were five? When you when you were five, what'd you want to be when you grew up? I always I always knew I would help people. I thought maybe when I was a little girl that I was gonna be a veterinarian. And fix 
fix their animals. But as I got older, I knew. I just knew that people needed fixing more than animals. Animals seem to have it right. But we don't. And so I went to med school and I became an ER doctor. Were you a good doctor? I like to think so. It's hard to it's hard to remember. What story did you tell yourself when you doubted that you were a good doctor? On my second day at Grandview, a man came in with a gunshot. Everyone was certain he was gone. Just barely a flicker of a pulse by the time they got him into, into the ER. And I got the bullet out and I got him back. I got him back. And so when it got hard, when I lost someone, I always reminded myself there's at least one person who should be dead, who should have been gone, but I brought him back. So where were you when the world ended? What were you doing? I was on vacation. It's the first vacation I'd taken in seven years. I finally, I just, it was at that point where I knew I'd never quit being a doctor, but I thought for a minute that I might. And I just, I needed, I needed something. And so I went, I went to Long Beach Island. It's where I used to go, where my, my parents used to take me as a kid. And, uh, God help me, it was awful. Uh, Long Beach Island is the type of place that when you're a kid, it's it's amazing. And when you're a 32-year-old woman, it is boring as sin. Who did you vacation with? Went down with Tiffany and Amber uh, and Martha, a couple of my girlfriends. And uh, I think you know, four four single girls in their early 30s. There wasn't a whole lot there. Why didn't you marry? I mean, I like to pretend. I always say that it, I never found the right one. And I mean, I never did find the right one, but I was, I was always too busy. I mean, I, I didn't take a vacation for seven years. If I wasn't, uh, in, if I wasn't in the ER, I was sleeping. What was the first sign that something was horribly wrong while you were on vacation? There's a, a quiet. Like, I mean, it's, it's a cliche, but the calm before the storm. Mm. And there was a moment of absolute silence. And I think like most, most people in their early 30s, when I, when I heard it, I checked my phone, and there was no service. You didn't know it yet, but after that EMP blast, that electromagnetic pulse, what was the first piece of electronics that you went to that wouldn't work? This is going to sound silly, but on Long Beach Island, there's a place that I loved as a kid, and it was was the most fun we had had on the trip. We were at Fantasy Island. 
and it was a ski ball machine. Lost your score, huh? There would have been so many tickets. So which of your friends knew first that something was wrong? It, it was Martha. What did she say? She said, oh my God. And she she pointed up. And we saw the after wave of the EMP. What'd you do? Where'd you go? We ran back to the shore house we had rented. I mean, it's an island, so there's not really bomb shelters. But we figured maybe the basement would be safe enough. You encountered a man desperately trying to start his car on the road back to the shore house. Of course, the car wouldn't start. It was uh, built, it had a computer in it. The EMP meant everything does. that's not going to work anymore. Everything did. Mm-hmm. What scared you about the way he was acting? There's something something in his eyes. His, his blood vessels, most of them had burst. And his eyes were so red. And I knew... I just knew something wasn't right. What happened to Tiffany before you were able to get to the shore house? Someone down the street had an ATV that they used to take down to the beach. And we were running and they were flying because their car, I guess, probably didn't start. And the ATV, they didn't have computers, really. The sound of it hitting her, I can all these years later, I can still hear it. Could you have saved her? I, I, w- I want to say no, but I don't, I didn't, I didn't really check because the person on the ATV, their eyes were red too. Was that the first time you ever? Left someone for dead? Yeah, at least like that. I mean, I when I was a kid, there was a car crash. I mean, it was before med school. There wasn't anything I could have done. But now you had the capacity to do something. And you didn't. I didn't. What'd you throw in the bag when you got back to the house? None of my girlfriends knew, but I started carrying a pistol with me. Not on me all the time, but if if I traveled, it stayed somewhere. I kind of felt scared when I carried it, but I felt safe knowing where it was. What did you steal from your friend? A bottle of pills. Why? Because I thought... I didn't think I would be able to shoot myself if I had to. Do you think they noticed when you left? I don't... 
I don't think I care anymore. Do you ever still wonder if they made it off? Every day. So where'd you go when you left Long Beach Island? Where were you going? I decided... Decided to try and make it to the Midwest. It was a long trip. But I figured if there was... If, if technology was fucked, I figured if there was a place that might be able to make it work without it, it would be like a Montana... I don't... A Montana or something. I kind of built on stereotypes, but I knew I knew things were fucked, and I figured it's a good place as any. So how are you planning on getting there without cars or planes or trains or helicopters? I mean, I knew I knew I'd have to walk. I'd seen the ATV, so I figured maybe I could find some small something motors. like a scooter or something. So how'd you get that scooter? What'd you have to do to get it? I I knew the family was still in there, and I knew that they might need that scooter at some point, but I took it anyway. You need it right now. They had each other. And so you started heading west and for wide open spaces? A home on the range, if you will? God help me, I did. You encountered a person, a man in Ohio, who uh, pretty obviously had an infection, an abscessed wound in his side. He said, Ma'am, do you have any medicine? What'd you say? I said, Ohio was so early. I was so young. And I I reached into my backpack and I felt the bottle of pills that I had taken. And I came so close to giving them to him. But I told him I was sorry and I didn't. I didn't have anything. And I mean, I helped him clean the wound and dress it up as best I could. But I mean, I knew... I knew he was a fucking goner. If I had... If I had known... Then what I know now, I probably would have... I don't know if I... If I... Could have pulled the trigger at that time. But I might at least let him use the gun himself. So... You took something from the old man... Not a thing so much as a a being, a person, a friend, someone who had nothing else with the old man gone. What breed was the dog? It was a it was a German Shepherd. And it would it had been protecting him. Being being so feeble. His leg was broken and it set. It was going to heal. He probably wasn't going to die. But, I mean, he was old. So the dog was his only protection. 
So you never heard the man call the dog by name. You didn't know the dog was there until the man was dead. What'd you name it? I named it Tiffany. I think it was a boy, but it was the only name that seemed right. He didn't seem to mind, though. Tiffany. Somewhere in Iowa, Tiffany saved your life. How? We'd just, we'd just gone through a tunnel and we came out and at first I thought it was a person. We heard some branches out in the woods breaking. It was some kind of mountain cat. Um, to this day, I don't know what kind of mountain cats live in Iowa, but it was big. And it was mean and it was hungry. You could see its ribs showing. And before I could do anything, I, I was underneath it. And Tiffany, I, the cat had to be twice the size of this dog. But he he, he took to its throat. Yeah. And we've all, seen, we've all read Where the Red Fern Grows. I don't know why they make us read that at such a young age, but... So, Tiffany saved you? He did. How'd you take care of the cat? What'd you do? I'd found more bullets for my gun by that point. It had been a couple months since I used the last one. But finally, a little ammo shop in Iowa had a couple bullets. Tiffany dragged it off me. But he wasn't going to be able to kill it himself. Like I said, we've all read where the real yeah. goes. I put a pistol to its head. And I pulled the trigger. It's a long way to go for a little girl who dreams of being a veterinarian. Do you really have room for dreams anymore? <laughs> uh, there might not be any of those in the new world. So tell me, when did you save Tiffany's life? I put down for the night at that point I was I think I was still in Iowa sleeping in a tent most nights and uh, I woke up to yelping and normally Tiffany is really good about barking if something come up on us but this time he hadn't. And I came out and there were two men just set on Tiffany, kicking him in the ribs, hurting him real bad. I killed them both. Did you feel bad about it? It's hard to remember. I think at that point I did. I killed a couple people before that, but only one or two. 
and always, I like to think at least mercy. This was, this was definitely the first time I pulled that trigger out of anger. And the first time you kill someone without a re—I mean, there was a reason they were—they were hurting my dog. But I mean, the first time, the first time you kill someone because you're angry. I mean, you have to feel bad about it. I think, but I don't feel bad anymore. Tiffany made it with you to Montana. When did you know she was sick? She had been getting skinnier. And I knew it was wrong because we, I mean, the two of us together, we made a pretty good hunting team. And so we weren't, I mean, there were some days where we might go, not without a meal, but with a, like one meal. But I mean, we ate every day and most days it was two or three. And she was getting skinnier and skinnier. Would have been nice to have a veterinarian around, huh? Yeah. So how did it end? How were you separated from your only friend left in that hellscape? Some, someone, someone took him. I had been, I had found some, some medicine that seemed to be helping. He was still dying. And I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna leave him. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And one night we went down and when I, when I woke up, Tiffany was gone. I don't, I don't think you would have just left, but maybe you did. I was gonna say, do you ever think you just found somebody better? Maybe you found a veterinarian. When you first met Ross, what was he doing? He is pissing on the side of a Circle K in Colorado. Did you surprise him? He always tried to play it off like I didn't, but I saw him jump. What did he say to you? He, uh... Ross was always... He had that... That kind of charm... That a lot of country boys have that... Borders on sexism. But... It's too... It's too sweet. At least I found it. I thought it was sweet. Uh, he said, uh, how'd someone as pretty as you survive this long? So y'all ended up traveling together. Yeah. Was it a romantic thing or was it a, a means to an end? It was a means to an end. I don't, I just wasn't, I mean, I wasn't interested in anything like that anymore. And I don't think, I think. Honestly, I, I don't think Ross was interested either. I don't, never seemed like he was interested, at least. We all were in some tough scrapes together. That's the world after it ends. Yeah. Tell me about the time you got attacked at the putt-putt. 
Why were you at the putt putt? One of the things I, I love about Ross is that every now and then we could make the wasteland almost bearable. We came across that putt putt, and I was looking for uh, something that I might be able to trade away. Out one of the little rest stops that had started popping up. And Ross let out this yelp like he had found something real good. A little red and blue putt-putt balls. And so we uh, shot a couple rounds of putt-putt. Who won? He did. He's a better golfer. Yeah, I never, I don't think I, you know, most doctors take to golf. I was always, I always preferred bowling. If we had found an alley that still worked, I would have kicked his ass. So who saw him first? You or Ross? I did. Ross was taking a shot. The uh, last hole wasn't quite as cool without power. The, uh, the windmill didn't turn anymore, but he is taking a shot. It's probably going to be a hole-in-one. And I saw him coming over the hill. How many of them? It's funny the way memory changes with time. And I don't think... I don't think it was that many, maybe five or six. But when I when I look back on it, it feels like it was a fucking army, 30 or 40 of them. So why'd you draw your gun first? Were you scared? Were you eager? Were you defensive? Not defensive. I think I was... A little bit of both when it comes to scared and eager. And it had hit the point where it had been long enough that you started to make it kind of like a game. Because that's the only way you survive at first, I think. There's the first couple of months when every night you lay there and you think about either swallowing the pills or putting the bullet in your head. And then before you can become seasoned, you have to make a game out of it. Because you have to get used to doing it. Until the scared goes away. So how did Ross respond when you told him? Did he draw his gun? Did he take cover? Did he sink his shot? <laughs> I almost for a moment thought he was going to take the shot. I. It looked like it. And then he, he turned. And they had gotten pretty close at that point. And he hit the closest one right in the face with that little putt-putt club. It is not, I mean, it's not as heavy as a real golf club, but when a, when a former stonemason swings a metal club at you, it's going to hurt no matter what. Yeah. It's certainly still worse than a kiss. And what did you do? 
I got two of them. And then my pistol jammed. And I had to, I had to fall back. After you fell back, you heard them loose the dogs after you. Did you think of Tiffany when they let those dogs loose? I did. The first one I saw had the same tan spot around the eye. And I know it's just a trick of the mind, but I swear at first I thought it I thought it was Tiffany. And so you defended yourself. You took cover and you defended yourself. You killed one of the dogs. I did. I got... And no one carries one weapon anymore. Uh, At that point, I don't think I had another gun, but I had a a real nice knife. It was big. And I got it. I got it right, right in the throat. And his handler came right after him. Chandler had a, uh, had a length of chain. Where did he hit you with the chain? And how do you still bear a mark from it? it? I don't know how it didn't knock me unconscious. But uh, it's how I lost, lost the outside part, at least, of my, uh, my left ear. So you return the favor in in double. You cut him open from belly button to sternum, didn't you? I did. At first, I mean, I, I, I reeled. I, I, I reeled real good. Uh, I hit the ground. And, I mean, I thought I was going to die. The feeling inside your head when you get wild with the length of chain. And he got, I guess he got a little too cocky and he uh, he wanted to make it hurt. I'd killed his dog. And I still had the knife in my hand and he leaned down and he grabbed my shoulder. He was so close and I could smell the stink of tobacco on his mouth as I looked up at him. And then I sunk that knife into him. Of course, you were distracted, weren't you? That dog, that other dog, leapt, hit you in the back, rolled you over, moved his jaws toward your throat. Mm-hmm. Was it before or after Ross put a bullet in its head that you realized it was Tiffany? I knew the second I was before. I knew the second I looked at him. Those eyes. Are you sorry? No. Should you be? Probably. But it's the end of the world. Who's got time for fucking sorries? So it's been a long time. You've made it again. You and Ross have been through a lot. Year after year. Let's build the tower. All right.
Hey, Mac, come on. We gotta get in the house. All right, all right, I'm coming. Here, here. That storm's bearing down. We need to get in. Right here, right here, right here. Double doors. Let's go. All right, all right. Ah, fuck. Ross kicks open some double doors. There's a sandstorm approaching. This wasn't a normal thing before the end of the world, but things change, right? Always changing. Ross opens the doors in a way that you've become accustomed to him opening doors, which is kicking them open. It's hard to say what's behind them. You don't want to be too close to the door in case something awful happens. Awful is sort of the operating mode these days. So you enter the the uh, the building. It's hard to say what kind of building this was. I mean, it's been, gosh, at least 15, 16, 17 years since the world ended. I think the thing I like most about the world ending so I don't know how old I am. You don't. You don't. You're old enough. Old enough to know better is what like Ross likes to say. True enough. And so he uh, opens the doors, kicks them open, and nods toward him, demanding that you go ahead and get in that door. He doesn't like to go in before you. I think I think at this point I've I've taken to shotguns over pistols. So I've got my shotgun out and I rush in. Empty hallway. It's a long hallway. It is very, very dusty. I mean there are <laughs> everything is everything is very, very dusty, especially in a place that gets sandstorms, right? Yeah. Sandstorms. It it's it's dusty. But it looks like it will be at least decent shelf. That storm's coming quick, though. You're going to want to find somewhere. Make sure it's safe. Long hallway proceeds down and away from you. There appear to be cubbies on the side walls. The, the, the hallway probably proceeds another 100, 120 feet down away from you. Tile floor, drop ceiling, cubbies with uh, pegs for coats. Proceeding away from you, there are doors on either side of the the hallway. They're never parallel to each other. There's all they're they're they're, they're staggered, and so on the right side you'll see a door. There's a door on the right side, maybe fifteen feet down, and then another fifteen feet on the left side there'll be a door, and then another fifteen feet on the right side there'll be a door. There's three such doors before you get to an intersection up ahead. Hallways maybe 15, 16 feet wide. What do you do? I'll start down. Is Ross Ross, Ross in now? Ross right there with you. I'll start down. Keep, Ross, keep the, keep the light up. Let's check these rooms. Matt, what's wrong with you? we got to get this door barred. We don't know what's behind us. He pulls. They're, they're two. Like, they've got crash bars. How are you going to bar... Double doors with crash bars on them. They are essentially designed that you can't bar them. Do the cubbies come? Are they how 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 solidly are they attached? I don't know. You'd have to find something to break them up, probably. I, mean, I think if they got crash bars, we're not gonna we're not gonna bar it proper. There's a length of pipe. Well, not pipe. 
There's a length of aluminum nearby on the floor. You could maybe wrap it around the bars, close them. It'd be difficult. It'd take some strength. You can do it, or Ross can do it. Of course, if you want to do it, I need you to pull. And if uh, you want Ross to do it, then what do you want to do? I'll, uh, I'll pull. If I'm not one to be shown up by Ross, you go and you grab the little yeah. aluminum. You don't learn a lesson the hard way once upon a time in a different city in a different state where you didn't lock up behind you when you were taking shelter and you soon had a problem. Y'all got much more secure after after the putt-putt incident, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it's a shame to lose the fun. But times being what they are. So you bar the door, at least make it so they don't make an awful lot of noise if anybody tries to come in. Now what? Now I got to check these rooms. I mean, who knows what might have taken up residence? Yeah. You uh, first room on your right. You come to the door. It is ajar. I mean, I think I, I think I learned from Ross. I'll kick it in. Kick it in. Door flings open. It bangs into a desk. In the corner of the far corner of the room, you see what looks to be a a nest. Like a nest made out of uh, of um, shredded books, and there's some fabric, some canvas, and it's some kind of burrowing creature. I mean, not a bird's nest, but some kind of some kind of nesting burrowing creature has built a nest in the far corner of the room. It's not there's nothing in the nest, but there is a you know could be a rat's nest, maybe something a little bigger than a rat. Not a you know it's nothing huge. I'll pull, it, pull the door back shut. I think that should be enough. Yeah. And there's a, there's probably, a, you would think a couple dozen desks in the room and one very large desk. You're, you're starting to realize this might be an old school. Man, it's been a while since you've been to school, huh? And especially at school like this. But we don't talk about that. No. So you proceed down the hallway next door? Yep. There is a. As you open it, it's another. It's another classroom. There's another teacher's desk. There's another couple dozen students' desks. A blackboard on the wall. A projector hanging from the ceiling. It doesn't work. Hadn't worked in a couple decades. And in the room as well, there are a number of rats. They are vicious-looking creatures. But shoot, well, there was a time when rats might have worried you, might have scared you. But it's long past that time. You live in a much harder world where rats are, well, they did pretty well, considering. I remember, it's funny, took a trip into Philadelphia once, and I was waiting on the Market Frankfurt line, and I remember seeing a rat scurry from the divider across the train tracks, and I... I screamed. Yeah. Do you scream now? Of course not. Ross pulls a baseball bat off of his backpack and says, shall I, or would you like to join? 
He doesn't wait for your answer. <laughs> he starts swinging a baseball bat at these rats. You've learned that they're not much to be worried about, but you still don't want to get bit by them. You still don't want to spend a lot of time with them. Yeah. After vanquishing some rats, you collect your 10 experience points and your three copper. And Oh, wait, no. Sorry, wrong game. Sort of have a magic sword. No, no magic swords. Proceed that back down the hallway. Yeah, so, got to check the next door. Yeah. So at this point, Ross says, hey, Mac, uh, we can keep inspecting classrooms, but we might want to find somewhere a little more, you know, less windows. You can hear the wind howling as it gets closer and closer. Yeah, I guess at this point, all, all we're going to find is some more rats. Let's go check out that intersection. You know, the intersection, classrooms, every which way. It's a T intersection. Uh, and and in and, and every direction are more classrooms. You would there are of course offices near the front of the school. You didn't enter through the front, you entered through a side. There would be uh, bathrooms, there would be a gym, there would be a library, there would be the things you would expect to see in an elementary school. Yeah, it's a school though, right, Ross? It's, there's gotta be some kind of shelter or something. Ross at the very ah, least yeah. uh, maybe a locker? Maybe like if there ain't a, a some kind of shelter, maybe the locker room. They don't have a lot of windows in there. Locker room? Well, I, you know, I don't know, Mac. I don't know if they uh, have locker rooms in elementary schools. Um, I think the kids just kind of come in their basketball gear when they come to play basketball. Uh, maybe a bathroom, maybe the office, maybe the library. I don't know. You're the smart one, Mac. <laughs> let's go. All right, let's find a bathroom. That seems like... Uh, probably the best we're going to find. As you approach the bathroom, you hear crying in the boys' bathroom. Tears are something you're still familiar with. Audible crying? That's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Sounds like a person. Uh Uh-huh. What do you... uh, What do you think, Ross? And... Should we just find the other the other pisser? I don't like the idea of sharing this place with anybody. Yeah, I guess we gotta check it out. So you enter the boys' bathroom where you hear a, a crying person. Can I tell an age? Young. Alright, who's in here? <laughs> This ain't no time for crying. Who's in here? I, I'm sorry. I I tried. It's just it's just it's just really hard. What the fuck you talking about? Come out here. You just hear more crying. I'm gonna kind of cock the shotgun, make some out noise. I said, come out here. He says, it's just so hard. I tried. Can I tell where the crying is coming from? From one of the stalls. It's closed. Ross says, well, Mac, you're the soft-hearted one. Go comfort the grieving child. It's hard. He tried. 
Ain't that always the case? I'll walk over to the stall, and I'll aim my shotgun, boot the stall in. Six-year-old boy sitting on the toilet. He's got all his clothes on. He's not using the toilet. He's just crying in the stall. He looks at you shocked. He's got dark brown hair parted in the middle, wearing jeans and a flannel shirt. Actually, looks pretty good. Like the shirt, it's in pretty good condition. If you saw a shirt like this that would fit you, you'd keep it. I'm sorry. I tried. What's what's wrong, kid? It's just so hard. You got it. Mom and Dad are gonna be so mad. You gotta use your words. Tell me what's wrong. He goes back to crying. What, hey, kid? You gotta tell me what's wrong. I can't help you if you don't tell me what's wrong. He flickers. I don't know how else to explain it. He's there and then he's not there. And then he's there again. All in about a second and a half. And he's crying. Was it? Ross, did you see that? He didn't. He's watching the door. It was Mac. Come on. All right, kids. What's going on? If you don't tell me how I can help you, I, we're going to have to leave you. Just talk to the teacher. Tell her I tried. Tell her mom and dad are going to be so mad. What, what, what teacher? He's gone. I want you to pull to maintain your composure. Ross says, Matt, what's going on? You heard that crying, right? Uh-huh. You heard, did, you, did you hear me talking to the kid? Yep. Kid's not here anymore. He didn't go out the door. Well, he, he kind of comes back. He's eyeing, he, the, he's eyeing the door, but he comes back and he looks in the stall. There's no kid there, and he goes... So you uh, worm down uh, the fucking uh, toilet like a snake? I mean... No. What's going on, Matt? Fuck if I know. Come on. I don't know. Come on. Yeah, let's go find another bathroom. I ain't, I ain't sticking around this There's a bathroom across the way. Uh, you leave the bathroom, yet yeah, go in the other bathroom. It's the girls' bathroom. You're, you can take refuge in here. There are a number of stalls. There are... Of course, they're all kind of short stalls or elementary school bathrooms. You can hear the wind picking up. It is howling. The storm is on you. There is no leaving. Yeah, I think we don't hunker down in a stall, but just kind of at the end of the bathroom. There's a very small translucent window up near the top. And let's light in kind of. It's, you know, it's the kind of thing where you wonder why do people put any kind of window in in a bathroom? But sometimes they do, and it's that sort of painted over translucent kind of window right at the top and and you can hear the sand plinking off of that window. Uh, Experience tells you it won't hold up forever but it's small and it's not right behind you. The wind is furious. Ross says Mac, what happened with that kid? I don't know. I've, uh, that ain't normal. Not even in the slightest. I mean, 
I never, I never took to to scary films back before. Uh, but it seems like something out of uh, shoot, Mac. We live in a scary film. Yeah, yeah. I kind of, kind of wishing I watched more of them. You hear the one of the sinks turn on. Well, that is unusual. You see a young girl staring at herself in the mirror. Ross, you seen that? Mm-hmm. He nods. She is splashing water on her face. Looking in the mirror, shaking her head. She seems overwhelmed. I don't like this, Ross. I don't like this one. Of course, the water's not on. You can hear it. But there's no running water. Of course not. There's no reflection either. Ross? But you can see her splashing water on her face. I don't think we should talk to it. Talk to her. Wasn't my first plan. Let's uh, let's just hang out. The boy, little boy disappeared. Maybe this one will go away too. The girl begins to talk to herself. You can do it, Missy. You can do it. You just have to bear down. You have to pay attention. You know what you're doing. You just have to do it, Missy. You have to do it, Missy. And then like a video resetting. It repeats the whole thing from turning the water on until that moment. You have to do it, Missy. And then it starts over again. And again. And again. Can I still hear the wind on the window? Oh, yeah. It's getting bad. You are not in the middle of the uh, storm, but it's coming. And it's bad now. You would not want to be outside at this point. I I don't... Let's just uh, take a couple steps back, Ross, and... uh... When you speak this time, the girl turns and looks at you. She breaks out of mid-sentence. She's going, you can do it. You just have to bear down. And you can, and she turns and stares at you mid-sentence and says, who are you? Thank you for listening to You Are Not Alone. Thank you to Josh Hearn for running Dread for me. Thank you to Epidiah Ravichal for designing Dread. Our theme song is Everybody Knows My Name by Harley Poe. Thank you to Joe Whiteford for letting us use it. Join us on June 6th for part two of It's Hard to Say When the World Ended. Until then, remember that you are strong, you are beautiful, and you are not alone.
took my life. 